Good morning, church. And Merry Christmas to you. It's not Christmas yet, but we can do that, right? I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to a single verse of Scripture that we've been reading and studying for the last two weeks, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. The title of this morning's message is Everlasting Father. We're studying this verse that Isaiah wrote during a very dark period in the history of Israel and Judah. It was a time just before the whole nation, the whole government, everything that brought order and, and stability to people's lives was about to be wiped away. And Isaiah, in the midst of this darkness, has this vision, this prophetic insight into 700 years into the future when he sees a child born. Now, he didn't know it would be 700 years, but it, but it turned out to be 700 years because this is a prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this word in particular. And Lord, as we walk through the truth that you are wanting to speak to our hearts today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be here in full measure, that you would open up our minds and our hearts to the truth about who you are, to the truth about your Son. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, there are four names used to describe this baby who would be born. They are the names given to Jesus Christ not by his Father, not by God, but by those who would experience him in their lives. And as each person experienced this baby in their life, they would, some would experience him as the one who gives guidance and direction, and they would call him Wonderful Counselor. Others would experience him, as we saw last week, as the one who delivers us and who stands for us and stands against our enemies, and they would call him Mighty God. Today we come to this third title, Everlasting Father. And frankly, this one has stumped scholars for years because it seems to be confusing. How can God be the Father and the Son also be known as the Father? And so we want to explore that today. In the Old Testament, there are many names given for God. There are things that God reveals about himself. In fact, uh, two or three years ago, we did a study in Exodus 34, you'll remember, and we looked at the things that God spoke to Moses, saying, this is who I am. And, and it, were, it was a, a series of truths that God described a way that he described himself. Now, knowing God as Father is rarely addressed in the Old Testament. It's infrequent. doesn't happen very often. And when God most wanted you to know who he is and what he is like, what he determined to do was to send his son. And so Jesus comes to let us know, to reveal to us 
who God really is. In Colossians 1.15, the Bible says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he is the express image of his person. And it means that he is an exact copy of the being of God. Now, with that in mind, and we have all of this Old Testament revelation of all the ways that Jesus Christ could have referred to God, described God, or revealed God, there was one way that he did it more than any other. In fact, there was one attribute of God that Jesus spoke of 189 times just in the Gospels alone. He refers to God or calls God by this name. And you know what it is? Father. Father. Jesus chose to refer to God and reveal God as Father. Now, immediately, for some of us, this can pose some difficulties. Because for you, for whatever reason, the word Father does not call up or communicate to you something that is strong and loving and warm. And yet God wants us to know that he is towards you and in relationship with you and me, he is primarily wants us to think of him as a father. I brought with me this morning uh, kind of a visual. I brought, I brought my birth father's uh, cowboy boots, his boots. And, uh, and there they are. You say, well, pastor, of all the things you could have brought to represent your, your birth father, why'd you bring cowboy boots? Because rifles, shotguns, and guns are not appropriate in church, okay? So I have those things too. You can come by the house, I'll show those to you. But, but his boots, he loved his boots. I'm a sixth, sixth generation Texan. I was um, descended from people born in Texas before it was called Texas. And, and, uh, and my dad was part of that. And, um, and yet... He was not a perfect father. Uh, when I was young, my parents divorced. The last time I saw him in my youth, I was six or seven years old. And for 20 years, I did not hear from him. Uh, my mother remarried. I was adopted by uh, the man she married, and he raised me. And so for 20 years, I did not hear from my birth father, did not get a card from my birth father, did not get a call from him, did not hear from him. And when I was 27 years old, uh, through a series of, of effort, uh, things that we did, I tracked him down. I found him and uh, wrote him a letter and called him. And we began, over the next 25 years, to forge a relationship. That wasn't a father-son relationship like you would have if you grew up with someone. But we did forge a relationship. And it continued to grow right up to the time that he passed away about four years ago. And, uh, and yet he was not a perfect father. I want you to know, dads, if you're listening, that there are no perfect fathers. So you can take a sigh of relief. Unless you think you're perfect. Anybody here think they're perfect, dad? If not, I'll just ask your kids. Um, there are no perfect, no perfect fathers. And yet God chose when he wanted to reveal himself, to reveal himself as a father. You know what God intends. Have you ever wondered why God caused you and me to be born absolutely helpless you know, animals that are born, some of them, you know, they pop out ready to roll. You know, they're ready to, they're, ready to, they're eating, they're kind of independent, they can do things. But, but we are born helpless, and we stay helpless for a really long time. 
Some of us longer than we should be helpless. And, and, and so we're born helpless, and, and, and in, a, in a way that God would order it, there's a mother and a father, and we are, we are raised by two nurturing uh, people in our lives, and they are investing in us, watching us, showing us things, teaching us things. They are a loving presence in our lives in an ideal scenario. And God intends that that father in that home, in a very real sense, that mother and father, represent God. Their first experience of authority, their first experience of someone who provides for them and cares for them. And when that little one grows up, it's very natural for them to hear about God being a father and say, oh, I get that. I understand something of what that means. And yet for too many people, it's not like that. Um, I picked up a book uh, a number of years ago called Faith of the Fatherless by a s- professor at uh, New York University named Paul Vitz. Paul was an atheist till he was 30 years old. And then he became a believer, but he was still a professor of psychology at this university. And, and he did some research, and one of the things he discovered, just using the standard uh, principles in his area of discipline, One of the things he discovered is that people who grow up with strong, loving fathers often have belief in God. People who grow up with absent fathers, abusive fathers, weak fathers, can often grow up to be atheists. And in fact, what he did was he actually went through and studied the family lives of famous atheists. People like Friedrich Nietzsche, David Hume, Bertrand Russell, John Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, Arthur Schopenhauer, he just goes on. Madeline Murray O'Hare, that's a blast from the past. And he studied these people and discovered that growing up, they did not have strong, loving fathers. Meanwhile, others like Blaise Pascal, Moses Mendelssohn, Edmund Burke, um, Alexis de Tocqueville, William Wilberforce, Karl Barth, Dietrich Barnhofer, these were people who had strong, loving fathers. And, And so it's very natural for us to be affected in our understanding of God based on our experience with our earthly fathers. God's intent is that every father would lead their son or daughter to know him as father. If you're a dad today and you're not actively engaged in helping your children know about God, I want to encourage you today to know that this is a divine assignment that you have. Fathers, bring your children up. It says in Ephesians 6, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It doesn't say moms and dads do it. It says fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How can we know God as Father? Isaiah says you can know God as Father through Jesus Christ. He is the everlasting Father. That's what he is called. There's an interesting exchange that takes place near the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. It occurs in John 14 verses 8 through 10. Now you hear this, the early part of this chapter a lot of times at funerals. Let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, he talks about going away to prepare a place for them. And, uh, and then in the course of this discussion, he says in John 14 verse 8, Philip pipes up and asks a question. Philip the disciple. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. You're going away, so just show us the Father, and we're going to be all right. Show us God. Show us us who he is. Jesus said to him in verse 9, 
Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? I remember the first time I read that some years ago. Philip says, show us a father, and Jesus says, have I been with you so long? Who's answering? Well, Jesus is answering, but you can almost hear the heart of the father coming through, the voice of Jesus. Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What do you think I've been doing for three and a half years? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Have I been with you so long? The Father was revealing himself through the Son. How can you experience the Father heart of Jesus? The heart of God through Jesus Christ. There's so many things. I started out with about six to eight things, and I, I chose four simply because of the time that we have. But let me, let me do this. How can you experience the Father heart of Jesus? Number one, by trusting him to answer you. By trusting him to answer you. Maybe like me, you had a father that never reached out to you. You know, when I was growing up, and uh, different things happened in school, different things happened in junior high and high school and college, and I was going through that every now and then, the thought would cross my mind, I wonder what my father would say if he could see this, or see me do this, or watch me do this, and could experience um, his response. He... um, And you may have felt that even if you called out to him, your father would not respond to you. But Jesus taught this about God. Listen to what he says, Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. I love that. For everyone who asks, receives. He always answers. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a a serpent, a snake? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? He's saying, you want to know about God? God is like a father to us as his children, and the Father answers you when you call on him. Now, the question is, in my experience with Jesus, does he reflect that same quality? That he is like a father who answers the cry of his children. Well, in Matthew 20, verse 29, we have an incident from the life of Christ that I think illustrates this. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And Behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out. What did they cry out? Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. They said, you guys need to be quiet. Stop it. But they cried out all the more, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Now look at verse 32. So Jesus stood still. Is that what you imagine happens when you get down and you get ready to pray and you, you cry out to God. 
Do you have a picture in your mind that the moment you open your mouth and you say, oh God, Father, Lord, Lord Jesus, that the very moment those words come out and you begin to call on him, do you have a picture in your mind that all heaven just ground to a, to a stop? And that Jesus stops and now he's looking right at you and he's listening to you. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? This is the heart of the Father being reflected in the heart of the Son. Trust him to answer you. You can experience the heart of Father God through Christ. Trust him to answer you. There's a second way you can experience the Father heart of Jesus. Number two, by counting on his care for you. By counting on his care for you. The Old Testament says of God that he has compassion on you and me. For example, in Psalm 103, verse 13, the Bible says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. And that English word there for pity describes compassion. It's a word for feelings. And just like a natural father, um, you know, little kids do this, children, grandchildren. Uh, You know, you may be in the middle of your work day. You may be a hard-driving businessman, you know, working hard at something. Um, you're on the phone, you're talking to somebody, and you say, hey, we got to get this done today, and you're, you're serious, and you're focused, and you're working. And that little kid can come in, can come running in. And, and I don't know about you, but, but the heart changes. It's like it just melts. It just goes to mush. still happens when my big kids come in. My heart just shifts. It changes. I don't see them the way I see anybody else. I don't respond to them quite the same way as I do anybody else. It's different. Jesus taught this about the Father. In Matthew 10, verse 29, he said, Are not two sparrows sowed for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Do you have any question that God cares for you when Jesus teaches that about the Father? The very hairs of your head are numbered. You know, I, I really think that's why some of us have lost our hair. We climb up into the Father's lap and he's counting them and he just rubs them off. You can tell the really godly people because of how much hair they've lost. Just look around. No, it's not that, is it? It's, it's that there is no aspect of your life that he is not intimately acquainted with. He, he knows every detail. He knows everything that's happening to you, even the things you're not paying attention to, the things you don't see, the things that you're, you're not even conscious of, he's aware of. A little bird falls from the sky and its time has come, he's fully aware of that. You say, how is that possible, Pastor? You know, I looked up uh, yesterday how many people are on planet Earth. You know, they have a world population clock. You can just Google that, and it tells you and the counter's running. You know, there's, there's so many people being born every minute, every second, and it's just running. It's tiresome just to watch it. But right now there's about 7.5 billion people on planet Earth. You say, how can God be intimately acquainted 
was seven and a half billion people like that? Well, we could just give the easy, easy answer and say he's God. Well, that's certainly true. Out in Boulder, Colorado, there are, they have the most accurate clocks on the planet for measuring time. They discovered years ago that if they could measure um, the number of times that an electron goes around an atom, they could get a pretty, pretty accurate clock. And they used a, an atom of cesium, the element cesium, and it goes around an atom, listen to me, about 9 billion orbits per second. 9 billion orbits per second. That's what they use right now for, for the measured time in the United States. It's a little electron going around an atom, 9 billion movements per second. Last year, they, they took another atom, a strontium atom, and someday they're going to use that for measuring time instead of the cesium atom. You say, why are they going to do that? Because the little electron going around the, the uh, strontium atom doesn't go around a mere 9 billion times a second. It orbits 100 million billion times a second. Now just think with me for a moment. If God can think at least as fast as something that he made, and I suspect that he can, if he thinks as fast as that strontium atom that goes 100 million billion times a second around there, he has the capacity to think about you and me and everyone else on the planet 13 million times a second and never break a sweat. He is always focused on you. When you were a little child, your mother gave you attention, your father gave you attention, someone gave you attention, and they were watching you. But there were many seconds, many minutes, when no one was seeing what you were doing. And when you were a child and you were first taking in the sights and sounds of the world around you, lying there wherever they put you, he saw that and he took delight in you. When you were a toddler taking your first steps, reaching for things, feeling textures in the world around you, things that mom may never have seen you do, dad may never have seen you do, but your father was taking delight, saying, hey, everybody, look at that. He cares for you, and you have never been out of his mind or sight. Is Jesus, does he reflect that kind of care and that kind of attention? When Jesus did ministry, he was simply showing us how the Father feels about you and me. In Matthew 9, 36, it says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved for compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Moved with feeling. When he looked at the crowds, he saw individuals in the crowd, and he was moved. Jesus cares for every aspect of your life and what you need. One of the stories from the ministry of Jesus that always has, has struck me is found in Matthew 8, verses 2 and 3. Some years ago, when Gail and I lived out west, one of the ministries I became involved in involved uh, sharing the gospel with young homosexual men. Years later, as a pastor in Mississippi, I found myself, just like on the west coast, dealing with people who had contracted AIDS. And in the early 80s, when people were given that diagnosis, even medical personnel were sometimes afraid to deal with them. Not, wouldn't touch them, sometimes wouldn't give them the proper care in their hospital room. And I, I would visit a guy in a 
hospital room. I remember one time in Tupelo, Mississippi. And, um, and when I would pray with him, I would reach out and touch him. One of the reasons I did that was because of this verse, Matthew 8, verse 2. Listen to what it says. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So there's a lot happening here. Here's a leper, socially outcast, um, unclean. You could contract leprosy by being involved with this person. He comes to Jesus, breaks all the rules, and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now listen to what happens. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him. Did he touch him before he healed him or after? Before. Before. See, that guy needed healing not just in his body. He needed healing in his, in his mind and his heart. I've been rejected. I've been untouchable. I've been unclean. Jesus reaches out and he touches him. And then it says, I am willing, be cleansed, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. This is how Jesus cares for you. The worst moment of your worst day when you've done nothing right in your mind and you have completely blown it with your life for that day or most of your life, I don't know, you may feel like your whole life has been messed up. But God, the Father, Jesus Christ, His Son, cares for you intimately and in a detailed way. He understands you. He knows what you need. He desires that you know His love. How can you experience the Father heart of Jesus? Number one, trust he will answer. Number two, count on his care for you. Number three, by welcoming his discipline. By welcoming his discipline. I almost did not touch this one because we know, you know, that people are abusive sometimes when they give discipline to their children. But this is a characteristic of fathers throughout the Scripture. It's a characteristic of God who is our Father. And so we need to understand it properly. In the Old Testament, we're told this about the Father. Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. In other words, it's because the father loves the child that he corrects them. It's the unloving parent that lets them do whatever they want, that provides no guidance, no boundary, no lines that says you can't go across here. And, and, and the Bible says that when you provide that correction, that boundary, saying you can go this far and no further, and you reinforce that, that, that it's because the father delights in that son. That parent loves that child, doesn't hate them. And the Father never does that in anger. The New Testament says this too about him. In fact, it quotes this passage in Hebrews 12. In verse 7 it says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And then it quotes this passage from Proverbs we just read. And then in verse 11, Hebrews 12, it says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been, what? Trained by it. Um, when I was in sports, we went through rigorous training when I played football. People go in the military, they go through rigorous training. 
discipline in order to become a soldier or whatever their assignment is in the military. And so the Father trains us to become, to learn, to change, to grow through discipline. Now, there are three ways that Jesus demonstrates the Father's discipline. We know the Father does it, but what does it look like? And, um, and there are more than three ways. Uh, in, fact, in fact, Jesus' standard way of discipline is that he taught them. Jesus just taught them things. And that's a, that's a part of discipline. That's a part of instruction. It's part of growing. He taught them. He asked them questions. You want a rich Bible study, just go through and see how many times God asked people questions in the Bible and how many times Jesus asked his disciples questions. He did it all the time. But, but when we think about discipline, uh, let, me, let me point out three things that Jesus did in disciplining, training his disciples. Number one, he uses direct and truthful words. He uses direct and truthful words. In Luke 9, 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, and what had just happened is a group of Sumerians in a village had said, we don't want you to come in here, Jesus. We don't want your disciples to come in here. And their prejudice against Jewish uh, people uh, caused them to reject Jesus. And so they said, James and John said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elisha did? I mean, that sounds good. Hey, these people rejected you. You want us to call down fire? You, I mean, you, we've done some neat stuff since we've been following you. We've healed people. We've, we've done miracles. And so, hey, can we take out this village? But he turned and rebuked them. Direct and truthful words. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And he does this through his word. He does this through a word. I, I remember when Gail and I first married, um, she wanted to have children. And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't ready. In my mind, I wasn't ready. I had all these other plans. Uh, I wanted to go and finish seminary. I wanted to do this and that. And I had all this in my mind that had to come first before we could start a family. And then um, about a year after we married, I was uh, sitting in a conference listening to somebody speak. And they, they shared some scripture about how much God loves children. And as I listened to that, just the scripture, uh, God spoke to me, said, Don, your attitude about the timing and all of this is not right. Now, Gail had given up, I think. She was talking about getting a dog. I mean, that's where she was at. I mean, she had given up that I was going to cave on this. And I came home after that conference. I mean, I left the morning one attitude. I come back the afternoon. I got a totally different attitude. I said, Gail, let's just, you know, the things that, whatever, just throw all that away. Let's start a family. And she turned white as a sheet. And boy, did we start a family. So God speaks to us through his word, and he corrects us. That's why it's so important that um, when you read scripture, you just don't gloss over the stuff that you really don't like to hear. 
when you're listening to a sermon, it's so important that you take some of that stuff that may challenge you. I know some of y'all call it stepping on your toes, but really take it to heart, move it from the toes to the heart, you know? Or it's really important to go to Sunday school, to Bible study, to be in a Bible study group, because what's happening there is that you are giving the Lord more and more and more opportunities to discipline you through his word. And I want that. Um, You want that. Second thing he does, he uses challenging situations. He uses challenging situations. In John 6, verse 5, it says, And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, I love Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? He asked a question. Listen to what what happens next, verse 6. But this he said to what? To test him. For he himself knew what he would do. And so he's created this impossible situation for Philip. There is no way that Philip can answer the question in his human ability and human strength and human resources. The only way this is going to happen is if God does something. But Philip was in this this situation. Was Jesus being mean to him? No. No. Was Jesus trying to crush his spirit, destroy him? No. But he did allow this experience to come into his life that was absolutely impossible, and it was a test. He was going to teach Philip some essential truths about faith, about God and where things come from and how to make decisions. Don't make decisions just on what you can see. Make decisions based on God's capacity, God's ability, not just on yours. There's a third way he disciplines. He uses our failures. He uses our failures. In Matthew 17, verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and this is after they had tried to cast a demon out and failed. They came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to him, because of your unbelief. They had failed miserably. It was embarrassing. I mean, everybody was talking about it. And um, it's a great story, but the point is is that Jesus even used that moment of failure to instruct them, to teach them, to guide them. Sometimes you and I just want to forget our failures. Jesus may have much to teach us through those failures. How can you experience the Father heart of God? Trust he will answer. Count on his care for you. Welcome his discipline. And then number four, here's a fourth way, by believing that he will always love you. You can experience the Father heart of God in Jesus Christ by believing that he will always love you. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the apostle writes, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. In Jeremiah 31.3, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. In Psalm 136, you can read that. Every single verse says his love, his kessed covenant love is everlasting. It makes a statement, says his love is eternal. His love is everlasting. Jesus does this. In John 15, verse 9, He said, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Now, sometimes we gloss right past that one. 
That's one you need to think about. As the Father has loved me. Now just stop right there. How much did the Father love the Son? How much does the Father love the Son? Does it ever stop? Does it ever weaken? Does it ever go away? No. The Father's love for the Son is infinite. It's eternal. He says, as the Father has loved me, that's the way I'm loving you. That's the way I love you. So whatever's happening in your circumstances, whatever's happening in your your world that may rock your world, one of the temptations you and I have to struggle with is that we turn to God and say, God, if you love me, this wouldn't be happening. We have to start with the truth. The truth is, is that he loves us greatly. Romans 8, verse 38 says, For I am persuaded, Paul writes, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When he saves a person, when we trust in him to save us, he unites us with Christ in such a way that everyone who is in Christ, he looks at as a son, as, a, as one of his children. And in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate you from that love. And because of that, God has a natural son, Jesus. But he has a whole lot of adopted kids. He's adopted us into his family through Jesus Christ. I read a story about two little boys signing up for a Little League, to play Little League. They went up to the registrar, and the registrar was puzzled when, according to their papers, it said that these two brothers were born six months apart. And the registrar looked at those two boys, little boys, and he said, hey, guys, it says here that you all are brothers. They said, yep, we're brothers. It says here you were born six months apart. And they said, yeah, we were born six months apart. They said, how is that possible for you all to, to both be brothers and be born six months apart? The boys looked at each other and they said, well, one of us is adopted. And the registrar looked at those boys and he said, well, which one of you is adopted? And they said, we don't know. Every time we ask our father, he says he can't remember. Do you know that your heavenly Father does that with you and me? That he loves you so much that you are so much his child because you're in Christ, if you're in Christ. That you are his son, you are his daughter, and he loves you as much as he loved Jesus, his only begotten son. Jesus Christ, as you and I experience him and experience his love, we experience the love of the Father. And when that becomes real to you and me, everlasting Father, it becomes very easy for us to say that and to call that name out because of our experience of Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Is he your Father? Have you come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that you know for certain this morning that you are his son, you are his daughter. There's a Bible verse that tells you how to become a child of God. In John chapter 1, verse 12, the Bible says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Him as Jesus. 
to as many as received him, Jesus, to them, the ones receiving Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Have you put your trust in Christ? Do you understand that God sent his son, his beloved son, to die on the cross for everything in your life that is keeping you from knowing God as Father? All of your sins. He took on himself on the cross, and the Father, because he loved you, poured out the punishment you and I deserve on his own son. He took our place. He is the lamb who takes our place, who carries away the sin of the world. He is your substitute. He is your only Savior. Have you received him? The Bible says the moment that you do, the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that at that very moment he gives you the right to become a child of God. Here's the bottom line. God wants you to experience his love through his son, Jesus. God wants you to experience his love through his son, Jesus. Let me ask you, please, to bow your head and to close your eyes. I want to pray for us. And then we're going to have a time of response, an opportunity for you to consider what God is saying to you. And maybe you're a person that can say without hesitation, my father was strong, my father loved me. And, um, and because of that, it's very easy for me to know God as my father. And I know that God loves me and that he is my father. I've trusted Jesus. And you can rejoice in that. But if you're a kind of person that, that can't say that, and it really is a problem for you, to conceive of God as a father, I want to pray for you that God would heal your heart. And that's what it takes, is that the Father would come and heal your heart and begin to show you his love and rebuild in your mind what a father is to their child. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, never received him as Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to do that today. Whether you're in the balcony Upstairs or downstairs, I invite you to come publicly, put your trust in him without shame, without hesitation, and say, I'm choosing now to trust Jesus. If you just need someone to pray for you, come talk to one of these pastors. We'll help you know how a person can follow Christ, or we'll just pray with you, whatever your need is.